We have with us today, Tim Maloney, Senior Policy Director for the Hoosier Environmental Council. Tim leads the HEC's programs on forestry, land use, and public transit. He is also the council's principal emissary to the Indiana legislature. Uh, he served as executive director and national heritage director for HEC. He has also been chair of the Hoosier chapter of the Sierra Club, as well as field organizer for Sierra Club and National Clean Air Coalition. He was a founding member of the HEC board of directors and his bachelor's degree is in forensic studies and psychology, and that's from Indiana University. Thank you for being with us today, Mr. Maloney. Sure, glad to be here. So um, I see that uh, some of the bills, you guys have a bill watch and you uh, put forth which things you support and which things you oppose. And I see that some of that came back around on the 10th earlier this week. Is there any uh, victories that uh, happened this week that you wanna highlight? One uh, positive item is a uh, bill that would enable the establishment of watershed development commissions around Indiana. Uh, these would be uh, watershed-based planning groups uh, made up of, of local government bodies in, in an effective watershed along a particular stream or river. Uh, and uh, we think that has a promise to improve uh, in the long-term stewardship of our waterways. Uh, there are a few similar watershed commissions already in existence around Indiana, and um, in, in many respects, they've done some good work. There's a similar commission along the Kankakee River in northwest Indiana, along the St. Joseph River in northern Indiana, and along the Maumee River in in Fort Wayne and, and the surrounding areas. So uh, it's, a, it's a tested idea, this, this bill, this is House Bill 1639, it, it tends to um, modify how these commissions might work, but it's wholly voluntary. No set of, of communities are required to participate, but it gives them a vehicle to do that if they choose to do so. So that's, that is a, a positive bill. Uh, there's another good bill related to waterway protection that is on its way to become law, and that is House Bill 1304. And this is a bill to increase the fee that boat owners pay into the Indiana Lake and River Enhancement Fund. And that fund is used to pay for projects that improve our waterways. It can be anything from bank stabilization to other projects to, to control erosion, to do feasibility studies on what type of restoration activities may need to happen on a waterway that's having trouble. It can help pay for log jam removal uh, as long as it's done in a, um, an environmentally friendly fashion. So that's a very good program. There's great demand for funding through the Lake and River Enhancement Program. So this would raise the revenue that's available to fund these grants that um, really any community or group of interested landowners could apply for these funds throughout Indiana if they want to do some work to improve their local waterway. So that's a good bill and that we expect that to become law. There's another bill that's on the harmful side of waterway protection and management. That's Senate Bill 242 that would limit the 
use of new floodplain maps developed by the Indiana DNR. Typically, floodplain mapping is done by the Federal Emergency Management Agency. They, they're the agency that launched the nationwide effort to map floodplains, and they have done that all over the country, including in Indiana, but they have not had the capacity to map all our floodplains. And of course, knowing where floodplains are helps guide guide local development activities because you want to keep uh, structures and people out of out of flood prone areas um, for safety reasons and for financial reasons. Federal dollars for uh, for flood damages if that happens, as long as they're trying to to protect their floodplains and and uh, keep incompatible development out of those. So anyway, the state of Indiana several years back started its own program to map more of our state floodplains, and they were using the latest technology, what's known as LIDAR technology, to help map where our floodplains are and also acknowledging that the increase of precipitation from climate change is going to also affect the size and scale of our floodplains around Indiana. So uh, a very uh, positive project, but those new DNR floodplain maps that supplement the federal ones have been used in local uh, planning and permitting decisions. And now there is pushback from landowners and communities who are concerned about finding out they have floodplains where they weren't aware they actually existed. And uh, so the legislature is about to pass a bill that would uh, restrict the use of these new DNR maps. And that's that's definitely a setback and uh, and just not a sensible approach to planning. One of the priorities we're working on here in, in this week and the week and the weeks before. Uh, there is a bill moving through the General Assembly, House Bill 1623, that would be a, a far-reaching reform of how our state agencies adopt uh, rules and regulations. And if you know anything about how, if your listeners know anything about how, you know, um, laws and regulations work together, and this is this happens either both at the federal level and at the state level. Uh, the uh, the elected legislatures, like the Indiana Legislature or the U.S. Congress, uh, pass laws that set overarching policy, and then they uh, instruct the appropriate agencies to adopt regulations that implement those policies passed in laws, and that. That's a and, routine. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And this is the bill that uh, uh, says not to pass anything more stringent than the federal. Yes, that's exactly correct. And um, uh, so that, um, so like I was saying, this would reform how our agencies uh, adopt those rules. It would give the General Assembly even more oversight and. Um, also require additional steps and uh, activities by the agencies before they can finalize an agency rule, including a very uh, detailed regulatory analysis 
um, more uh, more public comment opportunities, which is actually one of the one of the good things in the bill, but the the harmful things outweigh that that added transparency. But like you said, it has language uh, that affects both um, uh, proposed new Indiana rules to govern coal ash disposal facilities, uh, which is a big environmental problem through Indiana. These these leaking surface impoundments where coal ash was dumped for decades are contaminating groundwater at virtually every power plant site in Indiana. And the state was, uh, as directed by the state legislature two years ago, was uh, in the process of writing new rules to regulate these coal ash facilities. And um, uh, because the federal uh, coal ash rule has gaps in it. The state of Indiana rules were going to fill in those gaps with existing regulations from our landfill regulations. And uh, that's what triggered the language in this bill to say Indiana could not do anything more stringent than the federal government on coal ash regulation or even take action where the federal government does not uh, regulate a particular aspect of of coal ash disposal. So um, that's in the bill. And then there was also recently language added to impose similar limitations on the state's uh, oversight of pesticide application. The pesticides use in Indiana is regulated by the uh, by this Indiana State Chemist and the Pesticide Review Board. And this this bill now has language that calls into question the rules that they've adopted to try to, uh, you know, set standards for the safe use of pesticides. And I know probably a lot of listeners would rather see us not have any pesticide use. And there's um, uh, certainly a, a, an argument for that. But, uh, you know, as things stand now, uh, it is legal but regulated both at the federal level and at the state level. Yet you know, our General Assembly is proposing to limit those rules, which are just, a, or which are about, you know, making sure that as best as possible, these pesticides are used safely uh, to protect uh, human health, to protect, uh, you know, water quality and protect uh, the animals that might be impacted or insects or pollinators that might be Im impacted by pesticides. And also, it actually helps the food production industry because some pesticides applied in one place can be harmful to uh, to valuable crops or uh, or trees in other places. So um, there are a lot of reasons to have sensible and effective oversight of pesticide use, and this would set that back. So. I mean, we could go on and on in talking about this bill. It's it's uh, far-reaching. Uh, it's uh, the the consequences are not well understood. Uh, yet the legislature is rushing to to make this happen. So that's something that we're pushing back strongly on. So yeah, it seems basically designed to halt any progress in any area, and some of those organic farmers are having their crops contaminated 
That's a common problem with pesticide drift that affects the neighboring folks. And even, you know, it definitely is, is harmful for organic growers, but even other commercial growers who may have a different type of, you know, crop that uh, is not, is harmed by a particular pesticide that may be thought to benefit, you know, one type of production, yet it will harm another kind. So, I mean, you can have, you know, commercial non-organic um, agricultural interests fighting with, with each other over, you know, harm caused by pesticide drift. And, but, and clearly it's a, it's harm to organic producers as well when when they are affected. So it it it's really a lot of broad implications just with that pesticide language that is again ill considered and being rushed through. I may have lost you there. Can you still hear me? 414. So yeah, now you're back. Okay. So uh, uh, SB 414 was another mm -hmm. wetlands protection bill that you guys were opposing. Uh, yes, we we are opposing uh, language that was added to that bill. Uh, Senate Bill 414 started out as a a bill dealing with um, on-site sewage systems, you know, um, similar to septic systems that treat, uh, you know, folks on-site uh, wastewater. And, you know, the original bill, uh, there were a lot of different interests that, you know, worked out language and it wasn't something that we were uh, specifically focused on because we didn't find it um, concerning, but um, in House committee, uh, the uh, committee added uh, language to further weaken Indiana's uh, isolated wetlands law that they weakened greatly a couple years ago with a, a broader um, overarching uh, wetlands reform bill. And this takes the bad elements of that bill that passed a couple of years ago and makes it even worse. So that was slipped in with no notice to anybody and um, uh, is still, uh, then was adopted by the House of Representatives. So uh, we understand that that wetlands language in that on-site sewage bill uh, will be declared non-germane by the Senate leadership which is uh, what they do when they, when a Senate bill gets uh, changed by the uh, other chamber, by the House, the original chamber will review the changes and decide whether they want to accept those or not. So in this instance, we're hopeful that the Senate leadership will not, um, not approve those changes and that then uh, that language will have to come out of Senate Bill 414. The downside is that because the language passed one chamber of the Indiana legislature, it is eligible to be inserted into another bill in conference committee. And this is where you get to the, the complexities of the legislative process. There are a lot of different 
uh, ways that particular legislative language can can become law, and it's not always uh, uh, self apparent or or very transparent in in the process. So uh, that's something that you know we'll have to keep an eye on through the end of the legislature to to try to keep that language from resurfacing in another bill. So. Uh, but yes, that's something we're definitely opposed to. I guess that was House Bill 1647 has morphed through the Senate. Uh, yes, it has. Um, and um, there are certainly uh, a number of concerns there uh, with that bill as well, as we've described on our website. It's um, uh, that's probably going to end up in a conference committee, but we're not sure yet what's going to happen there. So, Well, also on the uh, wetland preservation front, I see House Bill 1515 is one mm -hmm. that you were for. Yes, yes. We were uh, supporting that from the beginning. That bill has not moved anywhere, so it's it's basically dead for the session. And that, uh, how how was the that different in in terms of the wetlands? Well, that was a uh, a bill that would have uh, established an additional uh, tax credit for landowners who protect wetlands, and um, <laughs> it it was a modest it'd be a modest incentive, but still a financial incentive to protect uh, wetlands on. Uh, uh, you know, private property that might be, they might, the landowner might be considering about developing or selling off for development that it was just give them some incentive to keep, at least keep the wetlands part of their land protected. So, but that did not progress. So. Hmm. I see some inconsistency in the stated uh, policies of uh, Indiana legislators yes. about things like <laughs> tax abatement. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I'll do, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, well, I was just going to say, you know, that's the that's the theme that you know we we deal with at the General Assembly, and that a lot of other groups deal with in terms of. Um, you know, our our legislature, you know, considers itself business friendly. Uh, you know, a lot of the legislators will will, you know, very straightforwardly tell you that they're small government conservatives. But when you get to the nuts and bolts of of so many of the laws that they consider and adopt, it's just it's contrary both to small government conservatism, it's contrary to, to fiscal prudence, and um, uh, it, it, in many cases, doesn't contribute to the, the need for, you know, Indiana to be a place where people want to live and want to, you know, want to move here and start businesses or raise families. Uh, and when you, you know, even the notion that you're business friendly, yet you're um, not doing the things, not adopting the policies that that attract uh, 
you know, responsible, successful businesses whose whose employees want good places to live, want quality of life, want you know, outdoor amenities, uh, good schools, all those things that that people look for. Um, and that the states that Indiana competes with for people and business that they're investing in. Yet, you know, here too often we see legislation at the General Assembly that just takes us in the opposite direction. And it it, it just is contrary to the, you know, the supposed notion that we're a business friendly state. And, you know, and that's not our focus. We want to have a healthy, safe uh, place for people to live and and um, and recreate in. And but but the fact is that those two things go together. You can't separate them. You can't have a successful state economically if you don't also have a successful state environmentally. And yeah, if we're you, still if you, if you can't trust your well water, and right. the kids not allowed to. Uh, Swim in the creek. <laughs> Not much of a quality of life uh, for people moving here, you know, to marry into a business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and that's that's the irony of what goes on here is um, uh, how so many of the policies that get adopted just go in the opposite direction of that. That sentiment that the people who you know work on uh, economic development and community development at the local level recognize you know that you have to have quality of life you have to have clean water and clean air and places that people want to live and raise families and and if you don't have that then you're not going to have a successful economy so well in a, in a somewhat uh overlapping area. I know you guys are for the uh, PFAS forever chemicals bill, and that's relating to, I think, testing firefighters. So you have people on the front lines that are being exposed to these forever chemicals, I guess, in some of the foams that they use mm -hmm. to put out fires. And then there was just recently the uh, industrial fire in Richmond, Indiana, which was a recycling facility that stored plastics caught on fire and the you know the smoke cloud went over to Ohio <clears throat> they evacuated a half mile around and they apparently contained that and then they were working to keep the water on the site I don't know if that became involved there but I mean um, it's you know the awareness is around now that to be in that profession as a firefighter you're being exposed to some of the worst chemicals that there are what's the uh, progress on that bill well I've you're frozen for a moment so i know there's at least one of them that's going to become law but i can double check that here while we're talking um yeah that's you know that has certainly brought the whole issue i mean the pfas has gotten a lot of attention nationally but here in Indiana, it's the it's the firefighters' concerns that have really helped push this to the forefront, um, and have um, gotten some you know attention and action finally on that. And they're you know they're they're on the front lines of this, using it in in their um, 
it's been used in their firefighting foam that, you know, they're just exposed to continuously if they're fighting a fire. It's also in some of the some of the gear that they wear. So it's um, uh, so they are very firefighters as a group are very, very concerned about this. And that's helping push some, you know, long overdue attention on on what's going on with PFAS and getting getting attention from legislators who normally wouldn't be um, uh, necessarily that interested in, you know, chemical policy and the risk from, from toxic chemicals. So, uh, yeah, that's a good thing. The other thing, another good bill that's going to become law is a bill that uh, provides for water uh, water testing in daycare centers for lead. And uh, I think it was last session, we had a bill passed that uh, required testing in schools for lead in, in drinking water. And now that's being extended to daycare centers. And I mean, this is really long overdue as well. And, and uh, uh, Representative Carolyn Jackson from Northwest Indiana has really pushed hard to get this done. And uh, again, you know, that it's taken so long to do something so common sense to protect our kids from, you know, one of the most damaging things that you can expose kids to when they're growing up is lead. So, and that, and, you know, medically, there's just no debate about that. It's, you don't want kids drinking or eating lead. And uh, so that, that's, that's a good thing. And uh, uh, yeah, and I see that was House Bill 1138. Is that now? Yes, that's the one. Yeah. And yeah, pre, uh, preschool and mm -hmm. the state right. centers. Yes. And uh, yeah, these, the chemical buildup, you know, it's hard to trace exact causes on some things, but. Uh, Autism rate, I believe, is, I think it's something like uh, one in 50 or one in 40 at this point, children mm -hmm. being born with autism. I mean, that's just been exponentially building. And we have all these different things we've talked about, wetlands and the forever chemicals, you know, uh, different sources. But it seems mm -hmm. that maybe a kind of an accumulation is occurring, a kind of a bio, you know, a generational effect that's going on epigenetically. Mm -hmm. that is ratcheting up there, there's it seems to be kind of exponentially getting worse and, and affecting things more clearly and yet we still have the opponents of regulation saying oh you can't prove it's this or that mm -hmm. yeah well you're exactly right um the accumulation of of the toxins and other things that we're all exposed to it it um, it certainly you know cumulatively uh, builds up and is a problem for for public health. But with lead, you know, lead just by itself is uh, is so harmful to to human health. There's really no safe level of lead in drinking water, and particularly for kids. And the problem with kids ingesting it or drinking it is that it sets back their neurological development. And again, the science around, you know, the harm that, that lead causes to 
to uh, children as they develop is just indisputable. And there's just no excuse for having our kids exposed to lead uh, at any level. I mean, just and uh, they, there was talk about that with some of the infrastructure spending because mm -hmm. of the plumbing, plumbing everywhere, but that not enough money has been put toward the actual scale of the existing infrastructure to be swapped out. And then there's also, what are you swapping it out with? Yeah, exactly. But it, but there's progress being made on, at least on that point. And you know there is a lot of new money for uh, for lead pipe replacement, and that's been going on in Indiana now for several years. And some of our water utilities have have uh, certainly embraced doing that. And you know one of the problems is that the, even if the water utilities are using uh, you know, safer materials in their pipes, when they connect to a house, um, there may be that section of pipe between the utility line and the home piping that is still lead. And a lot of, you know, folks who have these lead pipes in their homes or in their supply lines can't afford to replace them. So the utilities and, and the state of Indiana in in some of their revolving loan funds are helping also to pay to help homeowners replace those supply lines that you know gets rid of the one last section that may be lead piping that continues to pose a risk even if the utilities lines themselves have been you know upgraded so um, it's well, you know in infrastructure drinking water infrastructure wastewater infrastructure we have a huge backlog nationally and in Indiana of updating our systems. Um, I I live in Brown County, and you know we have a countywide water utility, and they struggle to keep up with you know upgrading their water supply lines. Um, you know having having damage. You know their lines fail, and they have to constantly be repairing those and you know, the money to pull all that out of the ground and replace it with new stuff, that's a whole lot of money to do that. And then this is, but it's not unique to Brown County. It's, you see that all over the place. So. Yeah, and that's why the scale of a uh, new deal uh, would certainly uh, also provide a lot of jobs with, mm -hmm. with a lot of that work being done. Yeah. And, and there's that final few feet into the house is usually done by some kind of a plastic hose and then you know we're dealing with the ingestion of phthalates and microplastics um yeah that that's still a whole other uh intake there and the pesticide issue earlier you were talking about that being residue in the foods um things like glyphosate is apparently coming down in the rain mm -hmm. and that is an antibiotic that destroys microbes in the soil. They say it's fine for humans because it's a different mechanism, but we are have our own microbiome that is essential to our immune system. So we're having this combination of lower nutrition in, in agricultural products in plants, which weakens the system. And then if you're also affecting the microbiome, again, we have this kind of cumulative effect of the fundamentals of our health um, so that, you know, 
all of these issues have to be ratcheted back to uh, allow us to even be in some base state of function. Yeah, well, yeah, you 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 call attention to the the much bigger societal problem of you know coming to grips with uh, the way that we have altered our environment and uh, you know what it means long term for you know the health and well being of of all of us, and I think we're not going to know that still for years, and you know some of us. And, you know, how much of our problems, you know, the health problems that people have today are uh, are either a result of that or, or uh, made worse by that. Uh, I, I just, some of that stuff we're not going to know for, for many years, and it's going to be future generations that, uh, you know, have to deal with a lot of this and figure out how to reverse some of the things that we've done to re-engineer the planet in, in, uh, in a unhelpful way to be, uh, to be kind about saying that. So lots yeah, to do, but you know, the, the people here now, I mean, we have to push for the best that we can accomplish and just keep at it and just keep at it and keep at it. And, you know, more people and, and you have to have the private sector, you know, involved in this and, um, uh, you know, using, you know, some of our innovative thinking to solve these problems. And, and um, it's not all going to be solved by more regulation. It, it's got to be a lot more than that. So, Well, the uh, environmental considerations are being lumped in with wokeness. Um, and it is a component of uh, that uh, spectrum of, of thinking, I suppose. But that means that a lot of opposition is, is rising up and sort of a bifurcation going on in corporate policy where a lot of corporations have been adopting uh, you know, a progressive outlook on, on these matters and trying to do things to address their supply lines and you know, concerns that have been brought up by their clients, by their customers. And now there's a bit of a... Uh, pushback on that i know you guys have some corporate sponsorship um i wonder if you have a grasp of uh what your budget is what your membership is how much support um you know active support that you guys have and uh, mm -hmm. you know ways you're working to expand that mm -hmm. uh sure well we uh i think our budget these days is uh in the neighborhood of a million dollars a year. Um, and um, I think that's a function of, you know, our, the Hoosier Environmental Council um, through its existence, having been very ambitious on our policy agenda. And so, um, you know, we don't raise money just to raise it. We raise it to pay for the work we do. And, and the more work we do, the more money we need to do that, but, um, and we don't, you know, we don't live high on the hog. We're a pretty lean organization and, uh, uh, and our, the money we raise goes to our program. And, uh, and so we're, 
you know, we're very comfortable with that. And uh, we get uh, we get our support from individual supporters. Um, some, you know, more just like at a annual membership level and some, you know, are, are larger individual donors, uh, just like, you know, people who donate to charity of all different types or causes of all different type. We have, you know, very um, devoted supporters who who give more than just the, you know, the annual membership level. Uh, we also get uh, grants from private foundations, uh, both uh, nationally uh, and in Indiana. We've actually seen growth in the grant money that we get from Indiana, which is very encouraging because for for many years, you know, in the early days of HEC, there were hardly Indiana, any Indiana foundations that supported environmental work. And so it's a positive development that we have uh, more Indiana foundations that support that work, not just us, but, you know, nonprofits throughout Indiana doing, you know, similar kind of conservation or environmental work. Um, and you mentioned business support. We do get some business support. We're very, uh, we're very careful about the type of business support we get. Uh, we, you know, want it to be, uh, we come from businesses that share our values um, and businesses that are, you know, have their own internal kind of sustainability ethic. Um, so uh, the, right now, you know, business support is not a big part of our funding. Um, if we identify, you know, private sector interests who, who we think share the right vision and the right, you know, corporate practices, you know, if they can help us, um, we're we're not at all averse to that. But you know, we're particular about that, and and um, I think it's been a good thing. So, but you know, if if you know, business the private sector business have to be part of the solutions. Uh, we you know we spend a lot of time at HEC fighting with economic interests and spend time fighting with government as well. But we also, if we can collaborate with the private sector and get the right outcome, you know, we'll do that because it's about outcomes. And um, and we need to, you know, collectively push the private sector to do better for sure. But, you know, sometimes you do that through, um, you know, maybe a more adversarial circumstance and sometimes you do it through collaboration it just depends on the uh the approach that that gets the right outcome so um uh that's it's pretty much been the way we've looked at it and uh <clears throat> as far as individual citizens involvement you say you have some membership support mm -hmm. do you have any idea how many people have become members and do you think that needs to be greater i mean are there other goals that you could meet that you're not ad addressing right now if you had more support? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, yes, I think mo like most nonprofits, I mean, you know, the notion of having the more support you have, the better uh, positioned you are to accomplish your goals. Um, and that's not always just money it's it's just people support and people action 
So uh, yes, we'd love to have more uh, membership support. I think we're in the um, in the um, as far as actual supporting members in the low thousands. Um, I I can't tell you the exact number today. And then we have a broader network of of contacts and people who will take action, you know, if they receive a call to action from us. And that's, um, I think that's in the neighborhood of um, 11, 12,000 people around Indiana. Uh, we'd certainly, you know, be delighted to have more of those folks as, as contributors as well. But certainly, again, you know, our, our goal is influencing state and local policy in the right way, shaping it so it's uh, it's better for the environment, our natural areas, our native fish and wildlife and their habitats. So, uh, and people help you accomplish that. And so we'd like to see more people, you know, active um, in more communities around Indiana. That's still an area where uh, where we can improve and and um, and you know and and make it clear that you know the work we do is not just driven from an urban perspective; it's driven from a rural perspective too. Because uh, people in rural areas and small towns they care about their communities and and their neighborhoods and. Um, and their environment just as much as people in the cities do. They may have a different way they look at it or approach it, uh, but they certainly care about it. And, and that's often where we get the most calls for help. Uh, from around Indians, from elk consider themselves to be an, an environmentalist, but they do care about their community and their home and and what's going on around them. And so, uh, you know, I think that's an area where AGC would in the capacity to to do more work to help there too. Yeah, there was some discussion in the uh, press conference around the. Uh, fire enrichment of the burning piles of plastic at the recycling place and i see that there were there's senate bill 155 on uh, idem's air pollution um and there was some question about whether uh i mean this facility had been cited many times had just had a court ruling against it that the city was trying to get them to clean up their act mm -hmm. and it's question about whether a state agency could be called in to enforce that situation and to have been able to prevent what ultimately occurred, this massive fire with a cloud going into Ohio. So uh, that SB 155 air pollution bill, what is, mm -hmm. what is that? Um, yeah, I believe you're for that one. Well, that is a, a bill that um, primarily um, enables uh, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management to uh, increase its permitting fees for air uh, air pollution permits to increase those fees to where the agency can continue to manage the program and 
and um, process permits, review permits, and uh, ensure compliance with the permits. I don't. It's not going to specifically. Uh, well, I don't know if it will specifically affect what's going on in Richmond. I mean, that's. I mean, that's a, a, uh, that's more of a compliance and enforcement uh, circumstance uh, where, depending on the circumstances, IDEM, you know, already has the authority to do that, as, do, as does local government um, under, you know, local ordinance related to health and safety. And, and if there's any uh, evidence of you know, contamination uh, coming from that facility, you know, before the fire started, then that would would have given IDEM, you know, uh, the opportunity to come in and take action. If it's simply, um, you know, materials that are just are being stored and they're not, um, you know, they're not legally classified as hazardous materials, you know, old, if it's old plastic bottles or plastic waste, that's a solid waste. And uh, so it, you know, IDEM does has have authority over solid waste as well as, you know, water pollution and air pollution. And um, I, but we don't know enough, you know, about the circumstances at that site in Richmond to say what should or shouldn't have happened, but it's certainly, uh, you know, situations that end up with a, a catastrophic fire like this with, you know, the release of toxic smoke coming from the burning of plastic, then that's something we should be doing everything we can to prevent. Yeah, because it's certainly becomes an air pollution and water pollution problem once it, once it goes up in flames. And I guess the question is uh, how proactive these agencies can be about getting involved or kind of, in a way, I guess, piling yeah, on. Yeah, and right. Well, this, you know, the Richmond uh, fire and what happened in East Palestine, Ohio with the train derailment, you know, th these kind of instances are, are not that unusual and it points to the importance of having you know well-funded agencies with the authority to protect communities and residents from these kind of disasters and you know that's really self-evident when you see these one of these catastrophes occur yet you know here at the Indiana State House you know, so many of the legislatures are just focused on on restricting what our agencies can do and restricting their uh, the work that they need to be doing. And um, uh, it it there's just a disconnect there between what's happening in the real world and what sometimes what's happening here at the state house. So. Yep, and I see there's also a, a SB 33 about the recycling of, of solar panels. Yes. Yeah, that um, that's a bill we supported, and I think that's going to become law if it hasn't already. Uh, 
it requires a study of um, what are the best practices for um, addressing, uh, you know, used uh, wind turbine parts or used solar panel equipment so that it doesn't just get thrown away in a landfill or stuck in a building and become an environmental, you know, risk down the road because it's just left untended and and um, may end up in a, a dangerous situation. So that's, you know, we, we're supporters of renewable energy and more deployment of solar and wind. And But, you know, no energy form of energy production is without an environmental impact. And so we need to do the best we can at limiting uh, you know, the the harmful effects of any type of energy production and also just using energy as efficiently as possible. So we don't have to produce so much, but, you know, people, some people uh, claim that, you know, there, there are these hazards from wind or solar energy, but but they just pale in comparison to what we've seen from fossil fuel energy production. If, Someone who's concerned about a wind farm, we can take them, you know, to southern Indiana, show them surface coal mines, show them coal ash impoundments, show them smokestacks that have been releasing, you know, toxic air pollutants for decades and affecting the people who live around those. And there's just, I mean, the comparison is not in the favor of fossil fuels, I can tell you that for sure. And so, you know, again, it's responsible to to be careful how we do, you know, renewable energy production, absolutely. But I mean, it's far preferable to what, what we've seen from fossil fuel production. And the front end of that is greater energy efficiency, mm -hmm. which is like producing energy. And I see that SB 221 is an energy audit to do with uh, government government campus does that mean state, state yes house? yeah that's state government buildings yes yeah so that's another bill we supported that just seems very common sense and there was a years ago there was an initiative called greening the government uh, but it kind of fizzled out so uh, hopefully this will help uh, kind of re-energize that effort not to use a pun there but <laughs> uh, yes government needs to be um, be efficient and the private sector and all of us you know as individuals uh, do the best we can but if our institutions aren't doing it then uh, you know just as individuals we can't do it alone we need our institutions doing it as well and and a lot of cities at the local level you see cities and towns, doing that more all across the country, including Indiana, and even you know, with very conservative leaders. I mean, they see it as a cost-saving measure because their, their perspective, they may care about climate or um, the environment generally, but you know, they also look at it from the bottom line. And, and you know, if you're reducing the energy you use, you're saving money, so it's that simple. Yep, just leaving the lights on all the time. That's some government waste. Yeah, exactly. And so as we approach uh, Earth Day here, you guys have any events? Well, 
or initiatives? The short answer is yes. Um, and, and it takes the form of a lot of different activities. Of course, there are a lot of, um, you know, quote unquote, Earth Day, Earth Month events where that are just like public, public gatherings where um, in many cases, you know, nonprofit groups um, and even some businesses will, you know, have displays and tables and people come and collect literature or, you know, trees that they can plant, things like that. So we, we participate in many of those. Uh, we work with um, a, um, the Aveda salons, which are, you know, small, um, uh, you know, personal care salons um, located around Indiana. I think they're franchise operations, and they they have been supportive of supporters of our work in terms of clean water and improving water quality. And you know, that's a good example of the private sector. Um, you know, first caring about the issue and and not just you know making a contribution, but also helping spread the word so that um, for several years they've done an event uh, I think typically during Earth Month called Catwalk for Clean Water and they do kind of a fashion show kind of thing and the whole idea is you know to promote uh, awareness of the importance of protecting our waterways so it's that's been a great partnership so we've got a catwalk event coming up in um, uh, with a salon in Louisville actually this year and I think that's at the end of April. And there, there are different, you know, we'll be at different events in communities around Indiana. Um, and um, then I think the big uh, Indiana Earth Day event is in June this year. So that'll be something we participate in too. But, you know, we make an extra effort but to, you know, help raise awareness during Earth Month. But you know, this is kind of a cliche, but, you know, in our in our work, every day is Earth Day. I mean, we're we're working to to help better the Earth and 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 its environments. You know, that's our mission. So uh, we don't, other than participating in a lot more events. You know, our work doesn't change. We're still doing the work we do every day. So, yep, and it's uh. uh clearly needed is there uh anything else that uh you want to add before we uh wrap up about uh hec or ongoing legislation well i think um we've covered a whole lot and you've really um you know raised all all the key things we're working on at the general assembly and and i just say you know in conclusion is that you know, it, it's going to take all of us to to make things better on the environment, both in our own behavior and and in you know convincing uh, our leaders, whether they're elected officials, state, local, federal, whether it's business leaders, other community leaders. That we, you know, everybody needs to be contributing to this and um, and understand, you know the economic importance of it as well as the 
the environmental importance of it and the public health importance. And people just need to be determined to, to keep, you know, helping push things in the right direction and uh, appreciate that you're, you know, trying to raise, raise awareness about this and not only our work, but, you know, there's so many good groups out there doing good work uh, around Indiana and nationally and globally and, you know, support the groups doing work in your own community. If, if you're interested and concerned about state policy, support the groups like ours doing work on state policy and, and um, just stay engaged and, and be determined. That's our, our message. Well, and uh, anything that uh, needs more awareness or any good causes going on, uh, please inform me about it. You know, shoot me an email or whatever so that I can... Uh, get them in and find out what they're up to as well. Sure. Glad to do that. And again, appreciate your interest in helping call attention to the, the important policy issues we're working on and just let everybody know, you know, hecweb.org is where you can find everything out about what we're doing and, uh, and how to support us or get involved in, in things we're doing or things in your community. We do have a events calendar and, so people can learn about a lot of things that um, on our website. Great. Well, thanks for uh, joining us today. And